Hey everybody, what's up? It's your boy Noir. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Cigars and Crypto. I had a great discussion with Arlen Colwick on the show, man. This guy is razor sharp. He is so bright. I learned so much about decentralized exchanges, front running, decentralized settlement, and capital storage. Also, what sets BlockDX apart from all of the other so-called decentralized exchanges. So make sure you check it out. Also, special shout out to my show sponsors, Noir Coin. I love those guys. If you're looking for a great proof of stake project, a great master node project, make sure you check them out at noirofficial.org. So hey, check it out. I'm going to pay a couple bills, then we're going to go jump right into the episode, all right? One love. You're listening to the only place on the internet that offers the perfect blend of high-quality premium cigars and cryptocurrency news and commentary. Welcome to Cigars and Crypto. Now here's your host, Invest Noir. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Cigars and Crypto. It's your boy Noir, and I'm so happy to have my returning guest, Mr. Arlen Colbeck. Brother, how are you, man? Hello, it's great to be back. Thank, thanks for, for having me again. No problem. Hey, I appreciate you uh, accepting my request. I responded to a tweet that I saw on a Dex that will remain nameless. Um, I'm not going <laughs> to the airtime, but I will give Block BX all the time in the world. And you responded oh, to you. me that it was not a decentralized exchange. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about that. What? What about the component itself is centralized? Well, since we can't really talk about the, the specific exchange, um, I, I think maybe we should approach this from a, a more general perspective. Um, otherwise, you know, I don't, I don't think anyone will re- really be able to dig into the details of what, what's going on there and why it, why it isn't decentralized. Um, basically, I, I think that almost across the board, with very few exceptions, every single thing calling itself a DEX out there hasn't decentralized one or more of the, the four core functions of, of an exchange. Um, and that, if those things are like absolutely critical to decentralized if you want to call it your, your exchange decentralized. And there are like another 10 or more things that you should decentralize in addition. But these four things really are kind of non-negotiable um, and for real reasons. So they, they are um, firstly um, the capital storage, the um, the order book, the compiling of the order book, the uh, the order matching system, and then finally settlement. So those four things. If you don't decentralize those, you've got a big issue. And uh, what what happens most commonly with so-called DEX projects is um, they'll do something like atomic swaps, maybe, or some other way of doing settlement in a decentralized way. And normally that also involves decentralizing the capital storage. But then when it comes to the order book and to the matching engine. They just centralize that, um, and that's a huge issue because you know the biggest risks that we have, apart from outright fraud and hacks on exchanges, are things like front running, things like selling lists of of stop orders to insiders, uh, things like fake volume, wash trading, all the things that you know make crypto exchanges so untrustworthy just could carry on. Um, so unfortunately, with you know your average so-called Dex project. There's the distinct possibility, in fact, in, fact in, in the medium to long term, the high likelihood of one or more of those uh, parasitic, malicious activities creeping in. Wow. 
He said parasitic and malicious. <laughs> well, pretty much. <laughs> no one likes being, being somebody's victim. And the whole point of, of this, this blockchain space is to disintermediate just so that it's impossible for people to have that kind of power over you. And, right. you know, it's ridiculous that these DEX projects, so-called, are coming along and, and churning out freaking nonsense that doesn't solve the, the actual problem that they are purporting to solve. It's just dishonest. Yeah, that's true. So tell me, um, tell me and my listeners, what is front running? Uh, front running is, um, is like this. Let's say, um, let's say that there are like a, a number of orders on the book at any given time. Um, now, if I were to place another, a new order that's at a better price than, than any of the others. So let's say the price of Bitcoin is, say, $8,000, and I put a price down at like seven nine eighty. Um, people just sort of in general, on all, all other things being equal, people are going to want to take that order because it, it's cheaper than the nearest, than the next buy price. Um, now, front running is where there is something in the exchange that, that gives people unfair access to that order so that they can, they stand a greater chance of taking that order than anyone else. So there, there are many sources um, of, of like, that sort of power. Um, for example, the, the very common one in, in kind of traditional centralized markets is high frequency trading. Um, though that's not necessarily thought of as malicious. Uh, quite a lot of people don't like it, but it's not illegal or something. But it basically is a matter of running software that is just faster than anyone else. So as soon as the order is posted, they will pick that up like a, like a millisecond or so before anyone else and will take that order. Um, it gets pretty crazy, you know, high-frequency traders want to trade like physically closer to the exchange infrastructure so that it just takes, you know, a short amount of time for the signal, the physical signal to reach them. Um, so that's one kind of thing. The other kind of thing is, you know, any other kinds of privilege. Um, maybe, you know, if you pay the exchange some kind of a fee, then they will basically give you faster access to their data. And that's obviously completely illicit. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a long list. There, there are many, many reasons, many ways that could happen. In, in the so-called DEX space, what we see most often is um, that DEX projects want to use a blockchain to run their order system. And they're, they're, they're drawn to that because it can decentralize the order system, but it actually doesn't solve the problem. It, it basically is so bad at solving the problem that we now have an entire ecosystem of front runners. Um, if you go to the website frontrun.me, M-E, uh, you will see a whole lot of data on this front-running ecosystem. It's, it's, fasc it's fascinating to look at. Um, basically, there's this whole kind of gas auction dynamic uh, where everybody's just trying to front-run. It's, it's wonderful. Check it out. Um, very, very clear reasons why not to use a blockchain for an order system. Every time I talk to you, man, I learn so much. Um, Thank you. Both about exchanges, about cryptocurrency, and uh, about finance in general. I'll definitely check out frontrun.me so that I can do my research and uh, become a Yeah, better. it's super cool. It's really good work done on that. It goes along with an academic paper, which is linked on the site. Um, and that, the paper explains a lot of what the graphs and everything mean. So, um, yeah, absolutely check it out. It's, it's really, really good reading. That's the movement. I'll definitely do that. So tell me what sets apart block DX from fake DEXs. 
All right. Well, um, <laughs> I guess we've, just, uh, we've taken a lot of time to solve these problems. Um, I, and I think this is the point where I have a, a fairly significant degree of sympathy for projects trying to enter the DEX space. It's difficult. Therefore, it takes a lot of time and money. Therefore, uh, anyone who has like a little bit of project management ability will see before long that unless they go to market in less time, they won't go to market at all. And so they come out with a product that hasn't really solved the problem, but has solved like a quarter of the problem or something, and then they call it a DEX and see if they get any traction. And that's happened in, like literally, I, I, I honestly don't know how many times, just so many times since 2014, it just keeps happening. But um, yeah, I think what we did um, is we started out with settlement. Now, decentralizing settlement is something we didn't need to design, so it's a good place to start. Um, Kei Kurokawa, if I'm not mistaken, was the first person to letter out um, the a protocol using the opcode check lock time verify um, that basically nailed down the last issue with cross-chain atomic swaps, um, which was related to um, the ability to carry out an extortion attack um, on like earlier versions of the protocol that didn't use check lock time verify. Uh, by the way, this was around the time that check lock time verify made it onto the Bitcoin blockchain before which uh, it just it just wasn't available there, and most other coins hadn't hadn't implemented it either, so it wasn't really open to us. But as soon as it it did become available, we uh, we went for it. That sorted out settlements, and in the process, it sorted it sorted out capital storage because it enables people to trade from their actual wallets that they're they're already using on their computers. Now we still have this other problem, which is this whole order system. Um, that's that's two things. That's um the order book. So how the orders get compiled, and then it's the the matching engine. So you know how the orders how orders get matched against each other. And those are normally separate systems. What we ended up doing is um, a thing where the each trader individually compiles their own book. Right now, this is on a peer to peer network, so they're getting orders from this peer to peer network. The network is gossiping orders across, and then you know not too many milliseconds, you can pretty much get every order that's out there. Um, and so your software on your computer without relying on any central authority can compile an order book and then you will see the buys and the sells that are out there. Um, and then that'll obviously get displayed on like on a depth chart inside block decks and you can go from there. Um, Super elegant, actually. It's like really, really simple. It doesn't require a whole lot, but it did require a kind of a paradigm shift. Um, most people today, and this the exchange that you, you said we won't be mentioning, is included in this list. Um, they start out by thinking of an order book as needing some kind of canonical or authoritative state at any given moment, and it needs to change state in kind of lockstep. Um, now, this is a, it's important when you're thinking in terms of kind of centralized systems. You know, you can't have your customers having like various versions of the order book because that's not fair, right? If you're providing a centralized service, you better be providing the same order book to anyone, to everybody. Otherwise, you might get accused of all kinds of things. Exactly. However, in a decentralized context, as soon as you start thinking like that, you're going to have issues. Um, because you're setting up an authority 
who now, when you think about it, is deciding on everyone else's behalf which orders arrive first. Um, now, the problem with this is this is, you know, it's built on a peer-to-peer -peer network. No one gets to say which thing arrives first on their own, right? So let's say you have like five validate validators who are responsible for maintaining state of the order book. Um, if I'm lucky enough to be connected to all five of those and I post an order, then like my order will get there pretty quickly. Maybe I'm also physically, or in terms of like network hops, really, really close to um, to one of these one of these validators, and maybe my internet connection is faster than yours. That gives me privilege, right? I get a better connection. I get the order book first, and I get to post orders to that book before anybody else. That's crazy, right? That's that's not what we're trying to do. That's that really just centralizes the system and limits the fairness of the system. Now. In contrast to that, what you could do is you could just put everyone on the same footing, right? There is no central entity at all that maintains state. All you have is everyone just gossiping these orders to each other. Now, this leads to, like, if, from a centralized mindset, this is going to lead to the question, well, how does, how does the book change states and how does, how does everybody know that a state changes is legitimate and how do we distinguish uh, correct state changes from incorrect state, state changes. So the idea is if someone takes an order of the book, um, who gets to decide that that really happened? And if two people at the same time or at very similar times try to take an order of the book, who gets to decide which trader gets the order, right? And now what we're doing is we're leading into the, um, the matching engine side of the problem. Now, once again, in this side of the problem, if you're thinking in a centralized way, then you're going to do something like uh, you're going to have a set of validators which collectively decide which trader takes the order, and it'll be you know who who got there first, and and maybe a few little checks like do they actually have the money or something like that. Now, once again, uh, as I said earlier, this is I think the same type of centralized mentality, um, and in contrast, what you can do. And this is what Blockdex does: is you can allow whoever added the liquidity to the book to self-sovereignly make the decision about who can take that liquidity. Right now, they could be running like the same, very similar logic. They, they the same basic logic as some centralized entity. They could say, um, "I'm going to take the first order that comes my way because I'm trying to sell coins, so I'm not going to, you know, wait for someone else to come along." Um, Provided that the order is legitimate, it's validated by a whole bunch of little checks, and off we go. Um, so, in other words, what we're doing here is, um, it's, it's, I think it's, in my opinion, it's really elegant. It is always the case that only one entity submits any given order. So, there can never be a contest about who gets to decide about a state change to that order, because only that entity who added that order can make the call to change the state. I mean, it's, it's great, right? You just, cannot have an issue with that. Um, and so what happens is that the network um, all updates, its every, every node on the network updates its, its order book once they have these authoritative messages about adding liquidity and taking away liquidity. Um, and so you have an asynchronous order book. Every, every trader's book is changing state at, di at different times, pretty much the same times, but slightly different times. And you know, you know what we just got? We've got a decentralized order book with a decentralized matching engine. Wow. Uh, you know, 
Yeah, you should write a book, brother. <laughs> you should write a book, bro. Yeah, I made it sound simple. There's actually quite a lot of other stuff going on. <laughs> so, I, I got the. Yeah, it's, it's not an easy problem to solve. There's a lot of subtleties to it. Yeah, I figured that there was a lot there, but the way you explained it to me, I actually understood it. And this is coming from someone who doesn't have a fintech finance or development background, but I understood the problem and the potential solutions and the solution that Block DX chose um, to Super. resolve the problem. So that was fantastic, man. I'm really glad. Thank you. I'm, uh, I often wonder whether I'm very good at making things clear or whether I'm just <laughs> kind of making things complicated. Uh, no. but this is encouraging. Thank you. <laughs> no problem, man. No problem at all. Wow. I just got a real lesson on decentralized exchanges today from the guru of decentralized exchanges, Mr. Arlen Colwick. Now, Arlen, before I let you go, uh, first and foremost, I saw you posted a pic the other day and you had some really oh, yeah. cool cigars, brother. I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah. going to the dark side, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So this happened relatively recently, you know. Um, I um, this this year I had a, several conferences in Europe, um, so I booked myself a long trip. And um, during a break, I was hanging out with my godfather in France. He's he's got this this really old farmhouse, kind of eighteenth century farmhouse in the south of France. Um, Freaking magic place, the south of France. Just, just go there if you ever have a chance. Go hang out in the foothills of the Pyrenees. It's, it's just so beautiful. But anyway, you know, he said, yeah, do you, do you smoke cigars? And I said, well, yeah, you know, on occasion, when there's celebrations and whatever, but it wasn't really like a thing that I did. Um, so, you know, he pulls up this, this Cuban cigar. And, um, man, I saw the light. It's, ah, it was absolutely delicious. I just, I just <laughs> hadn't had a proper Cuban cigar before. I mean, it, it, it had just been my luck that, you know, whenever there's a celebration, there's cigars and this and that, I just, I just hadn't gotten a really nice one. It just hadn't really hit home. Um, but this time it did. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I've been missing something here. This is, this is an art form. There's so, much, there's so much subtlety. There's just ah, the most wonderful experience. Oh, by the way, this is part of it. In the south of France, there is a kind of brandy called Armagnac. Um, it's... it's in my opinion, quite a lot tastier than cognac. Um, have a go if you have a chance. And some of them around there, if you're staying in the region, are really, really cheap and they're delicious. So this this wonderful Armagnac and some Cuban cigars, and it changed me. So I got back, um, when was that? was like July. I got back in, in September and I thought, okay, I'm going to have to make a humidor. I need to just, <laughs> need to just make a plan about this. <laughs> so I went and found this... Oh, uh, I went to a suburb in Cape Town called Woodstock and there are a lot of antique shops and there's a lot of kind of old stuff there. I found this old jewelry box for next to no money. Um, and I spent like a weekend kind of gutting it. It was full of, it was just really beaten. It was full of this old, old felt and it was dirty. And I just sanded the whole thing down and spent like a, another week finishing the outside of the, of, the, of the wood. Obviously the inside needs to be bare wood as I'm sure you know. Um, and then coated the inside with, with cedar and kind of did everything as as far as I know in the proper way, and uh, yeah, you know, now I've got myself a humidor full of cigars. My man, welcome, brother. Welcome, welcome, welcome. welcome. Oh, thank you. What a wonderful thing to have discovered. Yeah, man. So now you're not only 
my brother the coin, but you're my brother the leaf as well. So welcome to the club. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, you're gonna need to tell me sometime about all these interesting cigars you post about because I don't we don't get those here. Um and they look they look fantastic. Hey man, say no more. Let me know. Um when we're done with the interview, feel free to DM me and I'll send you about twenty of them. And then you can just try them and tell me what you think. Seriously. That yeah, is man. awesome. Just put them in the middle. Oh, I cannot wait. Tell me what you think. Yeah. All right. All right. Absolutely. I'll send you reviews. <laughs> awesome. That's perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, Arlen Colwick. Thank you so much. Sir. I appreciate your time.